today's podcast is brought to you by Citizen Path. It's a new way to prepare U.S. immigration forms. It's an online service that makes it easy to prepare and file USCIS applications and petitions. Believe me, as a nationalized citizen, I know the hassle. Citizen Path gives you instant alerts. If there's a problem, the service even provides a guarantee. Yes, a guarantee that USCIS will approve the form. Citizen Path was designed by immigration attorneys, but it's significantly less expensive than an attorney. And here's the fun part. Immigrantly listeners can use coupon code immigrantly to save 15%. You can visit their website at citizenpath.com. From the time I was young, I, I just saw disparities in my community across a lot of different areas. Being in the world where people aren't really sure what you are and you start to recognize from a young age, the disparities of maybe what privileges or access you have because of one side versus the other side. We've moved well over 100,000 meals, 40 something thousand you know, food packages in the last year. I mean, the numbers are crazy. And so the assumption is like, we must have these huge grants. Like, no. It's literally just us. Hello and welcome to Immigrantly. Before I introduce today's amazing, incredible guest, I want to talk about some housekeeping stuff. We have a survey up on our website and we are asking you, our listeners, to fill it out so that we can find the sponsors you want to hear from and the content you are interested in. It's an indie podcast, right? And in order to sustain, we need your help through the survey and by subscribing to Patreon. Yes, Patreon. Links to Patreon are on our Instagram, they are on our website, and yes, I may sound like a broken record, but it is so, so, so important that you do this for us. And now to our today's awesome episode. One of the biggest things that pandemic has taught us is the importance of mutual aid in communities. Now, we've seen people step up consistently during COVID crisis from city to city. We saw people on the grassroots level mobilized to share resources and keep their communities afloat. South Bronx Mutual Aid is one of these initiatives. And when you click on their website, you immediately see the words, we take care of us. All of their work comes back to this simple yet powerful statement. Founded in April 2020, the volunteer group formed after seeing the effects of the pandemic on their local communities. South Bronx Mutual Aid serves the Bronx Autonomous Free Fridge Community and have launched four free community fridges within their own network. They also distribute clothing, home goods, and connect neighbors to housing, healthcare, and other legal services. And today we are so lucky to speak with the founder, Ariadna Phillips. Ariadna is a bilingual educator and seasoned community organizer based in the Bronx. So let's get started. Yeah, so thank you so much for coming on Immigrantly. I am so excited. Thank you for having me. So it's been a little over a year since you founded South Bronx Mutual Aid, right? And in the last year, it's grown, like grown tremendously. And you have accomplished so much, like so many amazing things, especially with community fridges. But... I want to go back to where your journey started because I feel there's always a backstory to why somebody does what 
they do, right? There's always that journey. And I was reading somewhere that you began community organizing at the age of 11. Is that true? That is true. I was pretty young. Wow. What got you into community organizing? From the time I was young, I think I, I just saw disparities in my community uh, across a lot of different areas where mm. there's the way maybe one group gets treated versus the way another group gets treated, the way circumstances go if you are constantly vigilant versus the way that circumstances go if you don't say anything and you just allow things to pass and assume that you, you know, you have no power in the situation. And so there were a few things that happened when I was younger. One that is a catalyst that that absolutely came to mind and I was thinking about talking to you. My father's from the United States. He's since passed away, but my father was originally from the United States and um, my mother's from Mexico. And we had a situation where we had traveled to Mexico and we were returning back to the United States. And my mother was not a citizen at the time. Hmm. And my sister was pretty young. And so if you remember, there's the checkpoints that you go through. And so my sister ran, like she kind of got free of from my mother and she ran. And then my mother went after her and it triggered a situation where immigration enforcement grabbed my mother. Oh. And I was young, you know, we were both elementary age. They grabbed my mother and just took her away. Like my sister had just, you know, like small child had gotten away and like my mother yeah. had gone after her, but it had crossed whatever that power line is where you can't go without showing all of your documentation. And, you know, I think that my mother's bag was like still on, you know, somewhere back behind where that point was. So then she had tried to come back to where her bag was because I guess she had dropped it. It was a whole thing. They just took her away. And because in that moment, she didn't immediately have her paperwork like in her hand. They just grabbed her and took her and put her in a, in a detention room. And they just left my sister and I by ourselves, no adult in an airport. And we were children mm. and you know, my sister was sobbing. And I remember, you know, just trying to rack my brain for what on earth do I do in this situation? My mother's gone. A, a bunch of men in uniforms just took her. Where was your dad at the time? My father was at home. Not, and this was before cell phones. So, you know, he had no idea that this was happening. Oh. And, you know, I just remember panicking and screaming and trying to find somebody. You know, my father was an Air Force veteran. So I was frantically looking in the airport for maybe somebody that was in a military uniform. There's a military base in the area thinking that maybe I could convince them that we were worth caring about mm. because they might not care that my mother was an immigrant. That seemed to be the entire reason why this was happening. But maybe they would, you know, care about our dignity as humans if I mentioned that my father was a veteran. And sure enough, that's what happened. I started screaming, right, that my father was in the Air Force and that somebody had kidnapped my mother. <laughs> and mm -hmm. just screaming this until people in uniform came over. And then, you know, when they pieced apart the situation, they barked at the immigration officials, you know, demanding that they allow my mother to get her, her papers from the bag. She got her papers from the bag. And that was it. They just let her go. But it was because of that pressure, right, that other people were now watching, other people that they considered to be valid, right, in, in terms of their ability and right to be there and be treated decently. They didn't care about us kids, but they didn't care about what the military guys had to say. And the military guys cared that, you know, I was saying my father was a veteran. So that to me was a really pivotal moment in my young life in realizing people are not treated fairly by the very merit of being a human being, right? That, that even I with the mixed identity, one parent being a Native American citizen or, or rather a born in the United States American citizen, uh, <laughs> not indigenous, my father's not indigenous, and my mother being a Mexican citizen at birth, completely different ways of considering the validity of their humanity and what merited, you know, compassionate or reasonable or equitable treatment, including us as kids, right? Mm. Being her daughters. And I can think of a lot of situations that after that, you know, I was constantly thinking about fairness. I was constantly thinking as a kid about why is it that this one group gets treated this way or gets away with this? And this other group, that's not even considered. Like as a kid, I would get called out of my class to translate for other Spanish speaking students instead of the teacher needing to employ ESL methodology. 
they would just call me out of class to translate for the child and put them in a corner and assume that if I wasn't around, they didn't need to worry about teaching that child Florida public schools. And so I remember making us think about this. Like, what do you mean they don't get an education if I'm not around? You just ignore them. What is that? So first, right off the bat, I am fascinated and inspired by your agency as a child. You knew exactly as a kid, most kids are not aware of it, but I can understand why you were aware of it, because that was your lived experience. You had to deal with it, right? It's one of the interesting, I guess, elements of the duality of being a mixed kid, right? Of having mm-hmm. family of one descent and family of another descent and being in the world where people aren't really sure what you are. So you walk a bit in both and yeah. you start to recognize from a young age, the disparities of maybe what privileges or access you have because of one side versus the other side and what makes you accepted or treated a certain way in space because of those distinct identities, maybe from how the rest of your family is received. You talked about dignity, and that is something that you incorporate in your work as well. And I was so impressed reading somewhere. I think I I follow you on Twitter. So I was reading one of your tweets where you talk about how Kids or even adults standing in lines for community fridges should not be photographed because it causes a lot of bullying for kids in schools. It is dehumanizing. Absolutely. Which is so important. But many people don't think about it. Many people don't see individuals as multidimensional humans who are struggling because of their circumstances, right? Now, on the one hand, this is your lived experience. You've seen how duality of identity impacts individuals. But also as an educator, do you see other people around you who are as aware as you? Did you have to teach people to be more cognizant of um, these nuances? It's both. I think that Mm. I've been very privileged to be a dual language and bilingual teacher for the vast majority of my teaching career. And then I additionally certified in TESOL as well. Again, perhaps a result of my lived experiences. (laughs) Um, So the families that I've been teaching and working with for almost the entirety of the time I've been a teacher, I started teaching in 2003, have almost always been immigrant families. Um, There's some exceptions. There have been some students that have been, you know, second generation or third generation. So, but it's still possible that, you know, there's a household member that was the immigrant. And I'm going to say, you know, coming from Puerto Rico to the United States is still very much so for many an immigrant experience. Yeah. You know, Puerto Rico is an occupied territory. It's still subject (laughs) to colonial laws. Absolutely. um, That treat Puerto Ricans not as fully United States citizens on so many levels. So the experience of not even being able, for example, to vote in presidential elections, if you are a Puerto Rican living on the island, is a great example of just the difference in so many ways coming from places that are even supposedly, right, part of the United States, but it is not the lived experience of people that are coming Mm. from that place for many reasons. So socioeconomic, political, et cetera, Mm. linguistic. So that's been my teaching career is also learning from the experiences of others because I have to, you know, I have to introspect and say, I haven't lived the experience of being an immigrant. I've lived the experience of living abroad. I've lived the experience of being the child of an immigrant, teaching immigrants, working with immigrants, but there's always more that I can learn from others. And I'd say the way I've sort of seen myself in this experience or the schema is to try to amplify what I hear to try to amplify what I'm witness to, to others who may not be working or living as bridges in that capacity. I think that I've seen myself as someone that needs to both listen a lot and pay attention and then try to amplify what I think for many reasons can be risky for others to amplify. And I have the privilege, so many of language, of citizenship, right, of education and access and you know, profession to be able to amplify in ways that, you know, may be very dangerous 
for mm-hmm. other folks to amplify without bringing undue um, authorities <laughs> down right. on them for speaking out about things that are happening. I can think of a million ways that that's happened in the pandemic. Uh, landlords threatening their tenants. If their tenants say, hey, you know, this is not working, please repair this. Landlords that will threaten to call ICE. And I stand in a different situation where, you know, I can escalate that in other directions to try to keep the family safe and to try to report what's going on. I have a question which is not um, specific to the work that you do, but since this um, season we are going to focus on religion and American identity, I hear a lot about Judeo-Christian values of the United States, right? A lot of people bring it up. Conservatives bring it up all the time. And what is mind-boggling to me as a practicing Muslim is that a lot of religious values that they seem to adhere to talk about community, talk about giving, talk about equality, and yet in practical terms, I don't see them manifest in American society. Why do you think that is? Well, I I guess there are two points that I want to make to this. Number one, even just speaking to painting the United States as having Judeo-Christian values, I think almost a fourth of the United States is religiously unaffiliated. Yeah. Step one. Yeah. Absolutely. We have a significant percentage of people in our country that do not ascribe to Judeo-Christian values. And I would say if we if we start compiling the number of people that you know fall within all of these categories, I don't think it's fair to paint the United States as a landscape, you know, solely or or primarily dedicated to those values. So there might be universal values, like we're saying, around humanity, compassion, Hmm. dignity. And I think, you know, this goes back to there's what's considered to be culturally religious than perhaps what is closer aligned to to doctrine in religion and many major world religions, but also secular humanism, right? And the writers of secular humanism speak about the importance of compassion and caring for fellow man, right? Even as a, as a, an approach of our ongoing and enduring survival. Like Absolutely. if we do not care for those that care for our sustained food systems, we're going to experience systemic collapse. That's science and economics <laughs> right? as opposed to world religions. Absolutely. And I want to bring in another dimension, which is the idea of individualism, right? Because to me, it presents itself differently throughout different cultures. Now, the American or perhaps Western culture is definitely one that is, it tilts more towards individualistic societies. But we are also an evolving culture, one that is made of people from different cultures that do emphasize more collectivist values. I come from a culture that's built on collectivist values. Have you seen the culture of collective care, especially in your work, manifest in the communities that you worked with? And how is it at odds with the broader individualistic tendencies of American culture? I think one of the things I found most alarming are these notions of what we like to call rugged individualism, right? Uh, Which I often find is just this sugar coat of the realities of inequality in our country. Absolutely. It's like, oh, right. No, anybody seeking assistance, they must be responsible for their position. This is their fault. But the reality is when the, and I'm going to get a bit political about this, when the systems and means of production (laughs) are controlled by a few, like, you know, I'm sorry, where were those bootstraps that everyone was supposed to utilize if you didn't have, as an example, fair labor practices when it was when these systems were completely dependent on exploitative labor practices, you know, or again, I go back to food systems. Our food systems have been dependent upon undocumented labor uh, to be able to provide at all levels for what, you know, from the agricultural aspect to the packaging aspect and the distribution aspects like 
our country has absolutely depended upon the labor of immigrants as an example, completely dependent upon it. But then when it comes time to have some degree of maybe social responsibility, <laughs> that immigrants are absolutely essential to our continued survival. Then all of a sudden it's like, oh, no, no, no. You know, we, we, we cannot have any type of governmental paternalism around this. We must all like be non-interventionists, fend for ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's rich, right? Once, you've, once you've controlled <laughs> all of these other factors um, and, you know, gotten the blood from the stone that you needed, then you're like, no, 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 no. We don't need to provide for any of the folks in these systems that, by the way, are essential to our continued survival. I think that mutually what we've tried to focus on is the fact that, A, that's just a thing, <laughs> that we are actually interdependent hmm. um, and that are, you know, from the perspective of hyperlocal, you know, in the Bronx or in New York City, we will collapse if it's not for the labor of the labor of immigrants. And, you know, if our undocumented community self-organizes and pushes for change around these issues, we will be directly impacted. Even watching the, the movement of the deliveristas in New mm. York, right, self-organized. The deliveristas were essential for a lot of people to get food in a Absolutely. pandemic. And so I, I can only imagine systemic impact if the deliveristas go on strike and what that does to restaurants, right? What that does to the local economy, right? It's, it's already been tenuous at best in the restaurant mm. and food industry, given the impact of the pandemic. And so many businesses have shut down, including restaurants. So I go back to like, okay, well, if you want to think on this level of rugged individualism, well, what if all of the folks that are not being respected, their wages, their safety, their well-being is not being respected. How about they go the route of saying, well, we're going to protect. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, do you still like that rugged individualism? Because I feel like it's not going to work out well. And on the flip, right. And from the mutual aid perspective, we've just taken the mindset, listen, we look out for all of us. If we, if we keep waiting, I guess on the other extreme measure, like if we keep waiting for a governmental intervention or for corporations to come and save us, well, that's not also been the ticket in this. Like it's been us taking care of each other very directly. And that's what I love about mutual aid initiatives is this direct aid to people who are impacted, right? Now, something I often notice is that whenever discussions about social inequities happen or become very public, people, especially rich white people, they rush to give their money to these nonprofit organizations. And I have been part of advocacy groups and I worked in a civil society organization and I'm not discounting those organizations, but I'm sure you and I can have another podcast about nonprofit, nonprofit industrial, industrial complex. Complex, yes. Uh, but what argument would you make for giving your money directly to communities and how is it different from giving to nonprofits and advocacy groups? Oh, man, I mean, it's different in, in so many ways. There is a really interesting book I would recommend if people want to think more about this called The Revolution Will Not Be Funded <laughs> Beyond the Nonprofit Industrial Complex. But I think that one of the things that we've seen from a critical lens is that often what feeds the, the sustained, you know, capacity of nonprofits are the very entities that are also responsible in many ways for systemic exploitation or uh, mm. systemic imbalance. So, and I'm going to give you a very micro version of that in the South Bronx. So we have um, real estate developers that have been trying to fund food initiatives in the South Bronx and, you know, say, look, 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 here we are about food justice, but they're responsible for the displacement of, re of residents right? They're, yeah. they're responsible for the lack of affordable housing. And I mean, honestly, direct attacks on tenants to try to force them out of their housing and increased policing and so forth. That's led to further risk uh, to a lot of people in our community. And so I find it heinous. And like for reference, our, you know, our group, South Bronx Mutual Aid, we don't accept money that's tied to, to real estate developers as a result of this. We've seen how when folks, for example, are trying to give us funding that are tied to these worlds. And, and we asked them, well, where did this money come from? We've had to say no 
because wow. it has been frequent that the money could be tied to entities that are inherently a part of this problem, right? Or entities, for example, that do not want to see any type of unionized labor um, or entities that are not about fair wages, fair housing, like they're, they're profiting off of the opposite of that. You know, it could be financial firms. It could, you know, like they could be also funding things that are environmentally disastrous to our communities. Yeah. Um, and we've already seen things like this happen, for example, in Brooklyn with, with the pipeline that they've been trying to develop. So I think that, you know, for us, one of the big issues we've taken with just all of this being funneled through nonprofits is you have executive directors that this is their livelihood, right? They're dependent yeah. upon accessing that funding so that they can pay their bills. And so there's a sometimes a different mentality about who you're willing to take money from because the thought process is, well, we just have to survive, right? So we just have to say yes. There's a dependency upon saying yes to entities, even if those entities are questionable or even problematic and how they operate mm. in space. And to me, that's, you know, that's an ethics issue. And I think that's why many of us in the mutual aid world are crowdfunded, step one. And we also try to do as much as we can without money, right? Whatever we can do that's in kind, that is rescuing so that it's not waste, um, you know, minimizing, I guess, what would be a dependency on the types of like donations or grants that often what gets sort of tracked through the foundation and nonprofit landscape. And it's tricky. I'm not here hmm. to say that it's perfect, but I think if we're transparent about how we're crowdfunded and we're, you know, transparent about sort of our, our donation protocol, like we don't, for example, we also don't take any of that from political candidates and we don't allow for electioneering with our work. Hmm. Um, and it's interesting because on paper, 501c3s should not be doing that either, but I've absolutely seen it happen. I've absolutely seen the ties between what's supposed to be a nonprofit getting access to USDA food boxes, which is a federal program, and then local candidates and electeds putting pamphlet material for hmm. that you know, political candidate or somebody else that they are endorsing. And they're passing out via a nonprofit federal USDA food boxes that are stuffed with election material. Wow. I've seen that out in the Eastern Bronx. Hmm. I've seen that, you know, hmm. and it's galling that other groups that are just doing direct impact to families, like we're going, we're picking up USDA food boxes in our vehicles, driving them directly to people that cannot leave their home because they are sick with COVID, because they are elderly, because they are immunocompromised, because they're mobility limited, right? We're, we are using all the resources we have available to us directly to get this food out to community fridges and out directly to families. It is galling when we're short on boxes because some other politician funneled mm. the food boxes through their nonprofit crony buddies who are <laughs> opening up the boxes and putting in campaign material in the Eastern Bronx. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. As you probably already know by now, we talk a lot about mental health on this podcast and the importance of taking the time to take care of yourself. In fact, we've dedicated an entire season to it. And there are so many different ways to do that, whether it's meditation or getting a massage. But let's be honest, ice cream can only go so far and sometimes what you really need is to connect with someone. On previous, I've been open about the fact that therapy has helped me a lot when it comes to managing my mental health. If you've been struggling with stress, anxiety, or if you just want to learn effective preventative tools, BetterHelp might be for you. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's convenient, affordable, and you can start with your therapist in under 48 hours of signing up. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about and take the leap. For immigrantly listeners, BetterHelp is giving 10%, yes, 10% off their first 
month at betterhelp.com slash immigrantly. That's better H-E-L-P dot com slash immigrantly. Thank you again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. How do you navigate frustration? Because what you're talking about can be so frustrating, especially for the kind of work that you want to do, the work that you are doing to grow community, to be there for people. How, how do you navigate that? I'm going to be very honest. So step one, I'm a curandera. That's my spiritual practice. And it has to do with the community I find myself in of friends, friends that are family, there's, there's literally a specific group. It's called the warrior sanctuary of people that, you know, we're, we're pretty like-minded in terms of believing in the importance of how we treat other humans, of how we are collectively, you know, trying to harmonize in this mm. life with our fellow humans and what that looks like and how, you know, for many of us, this is sacred work, right? To, to care for our fellow humans to care for ourselves, to, you know, to recognize the divine in each other and have that be impactful, right? And how we operate and move in the world, um, you know, trying to, to move from a place of, of oneness as much as that can be comprehended, <laughs> right? So I'm trying to explain this in a podcast, but like, you know, really <laughs> sincerely, like trying to operate in, and manifest from that framework of, you know, us encountering humanity with love, compassion, patience, because it is, it is extraordinarily frustrating when you see so many systems that inherently separate us or inherently denigrate one type of human in comparison to another type of human. So I think that that community for me has been really enriching uh, and just spending time and taking moments really sincerely to breathe, meditate. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Do you think a certain level of idealism is necessary for community organizers? Because I'm pretty sure you've been at some point labeled as idealistic just because you are trying to appeal to basic humanity. It doesn't happen, right? I think the way I've come to see it is maybe on two levels. Folks that really the cynicism has taken hold see someone like me as idealistic. And folks who have a lot to lose because they've benefited from these exploitations might also Mm. label me idealistic because (laughs) it's easier to minimize what I am than to take ownership of what they are. I look at this as this is hardly idealism. I really do sincerely in my heart believe I'm doing my best to see humans as we all are, right? But if I, if I really do as best I can, and this is certainly echoed in a lot of different faiths and spiritual beliefs in our planet, True right? That. If, if we're all sparks of the divine, like we should really try to treat each other as best as we can from a framework like that. Um, and the notions you. are not new. These are thousands of years old. So I'd say, you know, point to most major world faiths. I'd be like, really? You're going to say that all of these others are like too idealistic because it seems mm. to be that that's what we're, many of us are striving towards in our respective religions and faiths and work. I just, in my world, community organizing, mutual aid, public education, for real, I'm really trying to live it, however imperfectly, mm. but I really am trying to live it, recognizing it's very challenging, but still at it, you know, with the impetus mm. that this is my life's work. This is my purpose in this lifetime to keep trying at this. Are you seeing next generation, especially kids, approaching altruism differently than their parents' generation? Is there more awareness? Is there more connection to it now? Because sometimes I am worried that on principle, yes, but in reality, when kids grow up to be adults, things change. Perceptions change. You know, and I'm thinking also about just how how we define altruism, right? Because it's this notion of of selfless, 
hmm. of, of selfless compassion. And I think, you know, and this is also something I speak to with my kids. There is a difference between exercising compassion and doing oh. so in such a way that's not, that's not loving yourself in the process. And I think that one thing I'm hopeful of and what I see in kids is that they are actually recognizing a better balance around these ideas of compassion, but they're also recognizing that they come hand in hand with loving oneself. And what we might've seen in previous generations is this notion of like, you know, endless sacrifice, right? On one and especially man as it gets attributed within gender roles, like these ideas of women making endless sacrifice um, even if they're, you know, at the expense of their own life, well-being, energy, finances, et cetera, that that's yeah. what's demanded of you, this, this unrelenting sacrifice that is lifelong. And, you know, a sincere belief that I have, and it's one that I hear coming from kids a lot, is that, no, loving yourself is incredibly important. And so the way that this is evolving in younger generations is self-love really is a thing. And Mm -hmm. that, you know, we must love ourselves in as much as we are caring for others. And sometimes that means letting others grow or having boundaries and setting limits, right? Because if we just enable, they're not being given space to grow or to learn in their own evolution. So I think that that's also important. I see this generation being increasingly vocal and holding adults accountable, which I think is brilliant. And also setting those boundaries. And you're absolutely right. I see that a lot. I have two girls and I can see that a lot in them. But where do you think they are drawing from? Where is this notion of self-love coming? Because older generations have probably indulged more in self-loathing than anything else. You know, I can think of a lot of a lot of focal points culturally. So Mm. the internet, the internet is this incredible tool that means the only voices you're hearing are not the voices of your parents and teachers and the people that immediately surround you in your neighborhood or building, right? You can be hearing the words of someone across this planet. You have tools that will instantly translate what they've said, right? Mm. And those things can be recorded in perpetuity and freely accessed, right? The good and the bad, there's also a lot of nonsense. (laughs) There's also (laughs) a lot of endless videos on YouTube that I just go, oh boy, Gen Z, how's this all going to work out? Um, But I think I'm hopeful in that this free access to information from people from around the world and their shared experiences, and it's on video and it's in social media, it's powerful in helping kids think about the fact that they are not alone in their experiences, that as they connect with each other, as they follow, literally follow mm-hmm. what other people who are creating content are saying, like I look at it in terms of even just how information is spread about Palestine, right? To take something right. very time sensitive and current. The fact that so many students in the South Bronx wanted to talk about what was happening in Palestine, it was not necessarily because their parents were talking about it. It was not necessarily because they were Palestinian, right? Or even Muslim. In many cases, it was because they were seeing on social media live footage of what was happening in the West Bank and Gaza. And they were seeing media that was being reposted and reshared that was originally recorded by children and teenagers that were there. And then they were reposting it, resharing it to social media. And so, you know, sometimes without commentary, it was just the video of what was happening. And so this was connecting students directly to at least the lived experiences of someone, right? And through their lens, and they wanted to talk about it and they were very concerned. And, you know, so all of these questions were coming up about American foreign policy from 12 year olds. You know, and I would ask like, well, tell me more. How did you hear about this? Like what you know, what spurred this. And I think that's why I said that this information age is incredibly powerful as a tool. It could be used, I think, unfortunately, to distort, to to add bias, to, you know, to create a sort of this vicious echo chamber of all hmm. hearing the same type of perspectives if we don't have free press 
if we don't have a press that is also consistently fact-checking itself and others right within its industry. Um, but on the flip side, the fact that this information is accessible from worldwide resources and individuals, I think that that's powerful for kids in caring about others. And to acknowledging the fact that movements for racial, um, socioeconomic, cultural justice, for justice for indigenous people Absolutely. are connected. They are universal, right? They cannot occur in silos and in one place not and not have yeah and not have an impact but something else that i've noticed with this generation is their ability to see strengths in their vulnerability and their weaknesses yes which is so profound and it is so so important i right? love it i love that owning for example mental health you know so many kids now willing to send an email about where they are in their mental health and how, you know, that might be impacting them in school, especially during a pandemic or in remote learning and being willing to open that dialogue about where they are and what their needs are. It's for me such an important step again towards what I'm hoping is more fulfillment for young people and feeling like they are not just being acted upon in an educational system, right? That they are essential to it as well. That, you know, their capacity to be heard, seen, and flourish in, in educational settings is incredibly important. Not simply, did, did you meet the metric and did yeah. you provide the <laughs> deliverable? It's not yeah. a one-sided you are the task animal that must complete this. Like, no, I adamantly believe. Like I have an opener every morning in my classes yeah. um, and the opener could be tied to things we're talking about, but often it's not. And it goes back to this idea of, you know, we need to come to a place of knowing enough about each other to feel like we're connected, to feel like there can be trust built there, to feel like there mm. can be care built, the, to feel seen, to feel heard. Um, because sometimes just sitting on, like I teach, I've taught remotely this year, um, just sitting on the other side of a screen is not enough if we don't know each other. How was that experience like? What were some of the challenges? I mean, you and I could have another episode on that. Ooh, I mean, the challenge of just not seeing each other's faces, I think, hmm. you know, that that's a big part sometimes of human connection, of just seeing each other's expressions and being able to sense tone and warmth and you know, whether something is received well or not received well. And it's very easy to, to put up shields to where we are or what may be the real maybe blockages to our growth, you know, in an educational setting. Because if the camera's off and you're not responding, you yeah. know, in chat, like it's, it's hard to know, are you okay? I mm. think that I, I think of myself as an educator as, you know, my wider role is not, you know, what have you produced for me? No, not in the least. I think of myself as a caretaker, a facilitator, right? Mm. Like, you know, my students are responsible for their learning, but I'm responsible in facilitating their well-being as well. And if I don't know that they're okay, if I don't hear from them, if I don't see them, if I don't hear responses from them, I, mean, I get really worried because I'm wondering, are you trying to take care of your other needs right now? Like you have students that are trying to make sure that their siblings are also learning in online school. Um, they may be home with those younger siblings trying to take care of them. And so they can't mm. be live and in class. So they'll sign on, but maybe have to do other things to make sure that their younger siblings can understand what they're doing. It came to my attention, this is throughout the Bronx, where there would be children that they would be accompanying their parents to food pantry lines so that they mm. could, they had the capacity to bring the food home and you know they wouldn't be left at home. And so sometimes they were missing class is a family had no other way of getting food, you know, especially again, going back to this issue of the, the issues that so many immigrants have faced in the pandemic, if you have mm -hmm. no government benefits and there was no safety net for you and the bottom fell out, then some of you are standing for two, three hours in a food line trying to get food. Yeah. Um, this is why for us, it was so important to have mutual aids functioning, to have community fridges functioning so that people had another way to get food access where there was 
no ask of like, show me your ID, show me how much you make, prove that you deserve this. Like, no, we should not have people standing for hours in food lines with their children. Like, this is not okay. So trying to create systems so that kids could, you know, feel seen, heard. And if they had to learn asynchronously because of these other obligations that are beyond their control, like trying to find ways to facilitate that. And I also feel it revealed the kind of socioeconomic inequities that exist within our communities, right? Lack of access to internet. Yep. Um, kids not having access to remote learning, which was probably not thought through before the pandemic hit. Uh, right? <laughs> so much I could say. That. Like you said, <laughs> be an entirely separate episode. Uh, Just uh, talking about that, about how many students we're trying to learn on a phone yeah. and unable to, to really do, you know, some of the work that would be a part of developing those skill sets off of a phone and the degree to which that seemed to be acceptable to folks uh-huh. that, you know, when kids don't have internet access and when they don't have devices and now things have gone remote, you're effectively denying them the access to a free public education, right? So you've just disenfranchised thousands of children. Yeah, and this is happening in one of the most developed mm. nations in the world, right? Mm-hmm. That's the irony of it all. Right. I'd say it's it's ironic, but on certain scales, not surprising because, you know, we are developed as much as we are. And yet, let's look at our healthcare system. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. We've had fights from major funding sources, going back to the nonprofit industrial complex, that did not want this vaccine to be shared like beyond, you know, the patenting process in developing countries. You know what? I feel like you and I should have another episode. We have so much to talk about. Before I wrap up, I am so impressed with your work um, at South Bronx Mutual Aid. And something that I was very curious to know about was how can our listeners support South Bronx? Sure. Well, it's not just me. I want to start there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say that people that we meet just talking to each other and you know, part of our messaging is it's like we take care of us. If you're helping move food, if you're helping deliver food, if you're helping package the food, if you're you know, or or sort the clothing or all of that, like please also take everything that you need. So that's again what makes us different from a charity is the same folks that you know can benefit from access to these resources and are helping move, distribute, package, you know, do the communications around these resources. Also take as much as you need. You know, I've seen too much in systems that, that gatekeeping of like, okay, there are the people that have the resources, but they are somehow distinct from the people that receive the resources. And we tell people all the time, we eat the food from the community fridges, right? Like I'm a single mother. Sometimes my son is going to have a mutual aid meal. That's how that's going to work. And there's no shame in that. And you take what you need, no you provide what you can. Um, and so that for us has just been, I think, how the system has grown and saying to people like, yeah, if you need food, like come volunteer. If you need clothes, come <laughs> volunteer. Like our whole plan is to share everything that we have with everybody. And if you're helping sort and package and move everything, like take whatever you need, what you like. It's all meant for each other, right? For for the members mm-hmm. of our community. Um, no shame. Like take what you need. For some folks, it's very surprising. They're like, really? Well, I'm only going to take one. I'm like, but what if you need two? Why don't you take three? <laughs> like, please, if you have you know, four children take four coats. You have to limit yourself. I'm not limiting. We're not limiting you. Like it's here. Please use it. Rehumanizing that and mm-hmm. destigmatizing it is Absolutely. so, so, so important. Absolutely. And I think just helping people understand that they're super essential to this process. Like I think sometimes folks, because of, you know, we've moved well over a hundred thousand meals, 40 something thousand, you know, food packages in the last year. I mean, the numbers are crazy. 100 tons, I think of like PPE and supplies and items, mm-hmm. household items. And so the assumption is like, we must have these huge grants or we must be you know, <laughs> like directly connected to a specific governmental office or whatnot. I'm like, no, it's literally just us. It's just mm-hmm. regular people with our granny carts 
and our cars and our living rooms and our, you know, wipies, like wiping down the fridges, moving the food, bagging it up, you know, collecting donations, going to the store, reimbursing people. Like it's just us doing all of this labor. It's just us calling somebody back with an attorney's phone number to help fight an eviction. Like it's just us, but just us gets a lot done. How can our listeners support South Bronx Mutual Aid? Sure. Well, by all means, reach out to us. Uh, There are a few ways. On Instagram, it's South Bronx Mutual Aid. Our website is southbronxmutualaid.com. And just in general, if people want to get in touch with us, you'll see our, our email and our contact information is it's available on our website. And through Instagram, people can DM us if they want to get involved. Mm-hmm. Also on our website, there's a link for volunteers to sign up. Volunteers are what make this possible more than anything mm-hmm. else. And if folks are inclined to, to donate financial resources, um, that information is also listed on our Instagram and on our website. My last question I always ask my guests to define America in a word or a sentence, and I am so curious to know what you're going to say. <laughs> okay, America. Well, we're here now, so let's all make the most of it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. This was so good. And thank you for the work that you're doing I I know you've attributed it to community and it makes sense, but there's a lot that you're doing and that compassion and that altruism uh, within the context of knowing yourself and self-care is so important. So thank you. Thank you. And, and thank you for having me. Wow. Just wow. Where do I begin? How do I wrap up? I mean, I am so impressed with the work that she's doing, her honesty, her commitment and compassion to humanity, which should be intrinsic, but it isn't. It's something that we don't think about or we don't tap into as much. I hope If you're listening to this podcast, you will consider volunteering and you will start looking at people as multidimensional humans who may be struggling because of their circumstances and nothing more. Until next time, take care.